Well, we are going to uh, spend a little bit of time today at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9 where the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God establishes with Noah and his offspring, his sons, and really beyond that, this universal covenant uh, in terms of its implications, we'll look at that more closely, uh, is um, really put into place in the formal sense. Um, We spent last week kind of doing a big uh, high-level run-through of the entire flood narrative of Genesis 6 through 8, and just to kind of get that whole picture kind of set in our minds in terms of the flow of the narrative. And then we ended up, obviously, at the end of Genesis chapter 8, where uh, Noah uh, engages in an act of worship, a worship of thanksgiving, a worship of sort of an atoning sacrifice, if you will, recognizing the provision of God, the salvation of God and just a gratitude offering for God's provision of carrying them through this judgment. It says in verse 20 of chapter 8, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So you have the the sort of preview, if you will, of the covenant that then becomes formalized and ratified in um, chapter 9. So let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 9. We'll read read verses 1 to 17 because that really captures the entire view of this uh, portion of the narrative. So we'll start in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 9. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So we see here in this, these first 17 verses of Genesis chapter 9 
really the beginning of this new life on a completely post-flood, very different kind of environment and planet. And really, there is an element here, as you see in the narrative, of comprehensive reset. And you see that, I think, really vividly uh, in the fact that there are new mandates that are given. There's new provision that is articulated. And there are added to it some new prohibitions uh, that, are, that are to be obeyed or adhered to in this post-flood world. But it very much mirrors, here in chapters uh, 9, verses 1 to 17, it very much mirrors, a portion of it mirrors what you see in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, in particular, verses 28 to 30 of Genesis chapter 1. So I thought it would be interesting to just kind of do a side-by-side comparison of those passages to see how they compare and then also see what is different so we can kind of draw the contrast and maybe think a little bit about why there is a contrast uh, in these two sort of mandates in this new world, if you will, in this new um, environment. So you have um, in verses uh, 1 to 28, excuse me, chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 28 to 30, you have that very well-known sort of uh, mandate, the the dominion mandate, the blessing, um, the, the command to be fruitful and multiply. It says there in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28, the first part of that verse, it says, and and God blessed them, after he created them, he says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And you have sort of the mirror of that in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So virtually the same uh, terminology, the same language being used there, except obviously the first one's directed to Adam and Eve, and the second one's directed to Noah and his sons. Then you have the dominion mandate that's articulated in the second part of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, after he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, it says, and subdue it, namely the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the mirror to that, if you will, is Genesis chapter 9, verse 2. A little bit different, though. It says, the fear of you... And the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So, a similar similar, uh, sort of offering of dominion, but some different elements there. Namely, a, 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 noted, a noted statement about the fear and the dread that will be among the animal kingdom of you and, and of every bird, uh, bird, beast of the earth and every, every bird of the heavens and every, every thing that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. It says, into your hands they are delivered, which you could say is similar to, uh, to have dominion over it. But there's this element now inter- introduced into this antediluvian world, this post-flood world, that is very unique. Now, I have a question for you guys that I want to just get your feedback on. Why, why do you think the difference? Why, why do you think there's this difference between what God said to Adam and Eve, pre-fall, pre-flood, versus introducing this new element? Okay. So it stands to reason now that man becomes the ultimate predator 
in this new world, right? And we're going to see that a little bit in the next section um, that Mr. Stang is referencing. The, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the whole dynamic, and really this, this is the, the larger point, this is the larger implication. We'll talk about, maybe we can talk about the specific implications, but the larger implication is, this is very different, even as it relates to man's relationship, if you will, with the animal kingdom. It's very different. And, and part of that is the predatory nature of man over the animal kingdom that is different than the pre-fall, pre-flood world. Because you see that in the next section where there's, there's a difference in the nature of God's provision of sustenance. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, in the pre-fall environment, you have this provision, and it's a provision of God that's in abundance. You see this in verses 29 to 30 of Genesis chapter 1. It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So in this environment, there is abundant, we'll just call it abundant sustenance, abundant nutrition that is available to both man and beast, man and animal. And so there is no predatory need, there's no predatory requirement, there's no predatory reality there for sustenance. You have an environment that is an environment that is inclined toward production and abundance. And so the promise is that is that there will be plenty for both man and beast, and it will be uh, uh, according to what plant life can produce, fruit, vegetable, that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, I, I will, in a minute, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I definitely will get there, yes. Um, 9-4 about not eating blood, the, the, the blood that's in flesh. Yeah, I'll talk about that in just a moment, because um, it is a definite distinction there. In the post-flood world, though, you have this provision of God, but it's, it's provision in an environment of scarcity. You think about the fact that the nature of the climate and the environment that they're going to be occupying, um, it's, going to, it's going to be much more scarce in terms of what it, the, the earth is naturally going to yield up. And so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a totally different kind of statement about how God will, in a sense, provide from the fruit of the ground, if you will. It will also include God allowing for and providing for uh, man to eat of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and so forth. But it's a, it's a provision in a completely different environment, is the idea here. And it does say, in verse 4, getting to that point now, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So there is a prohibition here. And it's a prohibition, and we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, as we go forward and look at this, the extension of this into... Um, the, the importance of, of not taking a person's life, not shedding man's blood and taking a person's life. But part of this is oriented toward highlighting the fact that man is not to... Um, it's, it's, putting, it's putting a sort of a, a civil limit on man's stewardship of the planet. So there's an element here of... of, of it's, it's in the flow of this discussion about 
um, not just taking uh, animals' life haphazardly, but taking man's life. It's in the flow of that narrative. And so it's putting a restriction on this to where you don't have, um, there's an element of stewardship involved in how, even how man is to subdue or, or have anything that it wants. And it's also putting value on the, the, the life that is in the blood. And really, this, this, whole, this whole sort of restriction is more formally codified in Leviticus in the Old Testament law. In fact, in Leviticus 17, verses 10 to 11, it says, If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. One commentator said it this way, that the, the nature of the blood of the animal is, is intended for atonement and sacrifice, not for consumption, not for taking, but for offering up. And so this gets codified further down in God's plan and redemptive purpose in, 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 in Leviticus. But you see this as, I guess, a precursor to that and establishing this new sense of government, this new sense of order um, that I have some other references for in just a moment. But that's kind of the sense of it. It's putting, it's putting constraints on this. It's not a free-for-all, okay, man's now a complete predator. You used to be you know, only eating animals. Now you can eat plants and do it without any recourse or without any thought. And there's also um, religious or ceremony or sacrificial implications that are tied to this that we also discover as God's word reveals later on. Now you have the so you, so you have this this mirror image, if you will, and it's not an exact mirror, as I've said, but you have this restatement, if you will, of man's mandate and man's purpose, and, and initially walking off the ark. So it's it's a sort of a a symbol of the fact that God created man and woman and gave them mandates. God destroyed the earth, and then then Noah and his family emerge from the ark and have new mandates in this new world. It's a similar sort of a, a frame, if you will, in, in the narrative. But with these differences, with these uniquenesses, the difference of the environment, it's, there's a scarcity in the environment. Um, if you can just imagine the earth, it's not like that there's plants and trees and everything producing every seed and every kind of fruit after the flood. There's scarcity. And that will be a persistent reality, as you can imagine, with the differences in climate and, and things of that nature that obviously were in play. Then you move on to see that there is a, uh, the preservation and blessing through law and order. And this is what I was kind of alluding to just a, a moment ago in this statement about uh, this restriction on man's taking uh, animal blood and eating, uh, eating the animal blood. There's a restriction there. It's leading to this the preservation uh, and blessing that will come through law and order, through some form of, of government, some form of civil life, if you will. In chapter 9, verses 5 to 7, it says this, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. So he's setting up this, this mandate against taking human life. I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. 
from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So you have this, this initial sort of um, entrance or this, uh, this initial statement about the need for some semblance of law and order. And really, if you go back and think about what we studied uh, in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, and you, or 6 through 8, and you see the, the descriptions there, especially early, uh, early on in the narrative of what the world was like. It was characterized by violence. So there's clearly, and obviously we saw earlier in the narrative, the, the, pre, the, the presence of murder and taking life and vengeance and those kinds of things were prevalent. So you have this new, this new world, and Noah and his sons, as the progenitors of population going forward, and there's this establishment of the value of human life and punishment for indiscriminate taking of human life. It, it's a limit on man's dom- dominion here, and it's sharply contrasted with God's dominion. And this is a point where oftentimes man likes to put God on trial, especially when man is analyzing Scripture especially from a skeptical point of view, not from necessarily a fully believing point of view and a submissive point of view, but from a skeptical point of view. In fact, you'll often hear things like, you know, why would I believe in a God who would, you know, kill everybody indiscriminately with a flood? Why would I, why would I trust in a God who would command, you know, people to go and murder uh, men, women, and children? That kind of thing. It's, it's, it's this kind of of principle here that puts a sharp contrast between man's dominion, which is limited, and God's dominion, which is not limited. His dominion is not limited. His justice is just because he is just. His, his, his acts are just because he is just. And so oftentimes what happens is people start to put God and his justice on trial, and they bring God down and put him into the, you know, the witness stand and say, answer for your crimes. This right here puts that in stark, bold relief because what has just happened? What has just happened? God killed everybody except for Noah and his, son, his family, right? I mean, he killed them. I mean, let's just be plain. Let's just be blunt. He annihilated everybody on the planet except Noah and his family. It's not the same. And God is making a point. What I do in metting out my justice and the impact that that has on human life is not yours to take hold of or lay claim of. It's a stark, stark contrasting point that's being made here. It puts limits on man's dominion. It also, this life-for-life reckoning, um, this, this, this tendency of man to devalue the image of God in man, he's putting, a, a, he's putting a, a capital form of punishment on that diminishment that is not, unfortunately, not uncommon in the wicked hearts of men. Even though, this also makes another interesting point, that even though uh, man was corrupted by the fall, man still is an image bearer. Even after the flood, even after this massive worldwide destruction of wicked men, that there is still the image of God and man 
and it is to be valued. And that is the reference that you see here, this reference again to God being an image bearer. Alan Ross says this, By these teachings, humankind would learn that law was necessary for the stability of life in the new order, that wickedness could not go unchecked as it had done before. Human government was instituted in these early provisions. Now, I know it doesn't sound like a big organized, you know, it's not like you're getting a a whole list of laws and, you know, an enforcement crew to go around and enforce all the laws. I mean, I know it's not that elaborate in its description, but I thought this was a, a compelling way to look at it as well. This is from Morris. It says, at the time these words were first spoken, all men indeed were literal brothers. You've got to put it back into its context. It's just Noah and his sons and their wives. All men were literally brothers, for only these three sons of Noah were living at the time, other than Noah himself. Since all future people would be descended from these three men and their wives, in a very real sense, all men are brothers because all were once in the loins of these three brothers. This is, in essence, a command to establish a formal system of human government in order to assure that justice is carried out, especially in the case of murder. So again, we have to think of this as formative in nature. This is the beginning of the rest of society. The, the, the restart, if you will, of the rest of society. So in that sense, it is God putting limits and restrictions on man's dominion and man's freedom and man's liberty. And it's putting a limit, namely in this area of murder, taking of human life, and really holding up the image of God in man as the principle in play there. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I don't know exactly. Um, I, I don't know if I could really answer how God um, fulfills that, you know, in, in a practical way. Um, I do think that you can draw from it uh, basically the the sense of value um, in in human life as a result of this. Um, it may mean that <clears throat> that. Um, Custom would be that if an animal took a human's life, that animal should perish. In other words, I started to think about some of this. Um, I didn't make any notes or anything, but I just began to think about how, um, how in some ways this seems very simplistic, uh, you know, almost too simplistic for me in the 21st century and how sophisticated I am, you know, how advanced I am, how wise I am. You know, I live now in a world that's characterized by a whole bunch of different laws and ideas and cultural mores and taboos about how you treat people and how you treat animals and how, I mean, all these different things. But if you think about it, much of the things that we labor under as it relates to law and and culture are overcomplications And when you look at God's principles of law and order, you really get back to fundamental, basic, relatively simplistic principles and values. 
and all the complications that we kind of wrestle with when we go back and look at these things are complications that we kind of bring from our own experience and our own, even our own fallenness and, and, and living in a fallen world and, and breathing that oxygen, you know, and it forming our thinking. We bring it back to these kinds of passages and we start to say, well, that just seems really simplistic or is that, can that really be right? Because, I mean, think about it. Um, <clears throat> the idea of blaming an animal, an innocent animal, for taking a human life? I mean, how could you do that? I mean, it's just an innocent animal. Well, is it? I mean, we're, we're, in other words, I'm bringing that sentiment to the principle myself. And a lot of that is informed by things other than Scripture. You see what I'm saying? You see how that, that happens? Right. In the Old Testament, for sure. Yeah. But the but the, in our modern era, it's it's completely flipped in terms of valuing. You know, there's there's more value placed upon created things than on human life. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. Possibly, but certainly in our country, for sure. I would definitely say for sure in our country. And so I think that that's kind of, you know, the, the, uh, a, a takeaway here is that there is value in human life that goes so far as to say that even if an animal takes a human life, there, is, there should be a reckoning for that. That's the principle that is being mandated. The bigger principle, of course, is, again, law and order and, and stability and, and putting things in place that would preserve and protect a semblance of order in man's conduct with man and man's conduct with God's creation. Then in verse 7, at the end of this section, you see this repeating of this procreation mandate. And it just emphasizes this blessing of offspring to parents. It emphasizes the necessity of offspring for dominion. And it emphasizes, again, the intrinsic value of human life this repeat of being fruitful and multiply. Obviously, it closes, and from a literary standpoint, it kind of closes that little section. It's kind of like a bookend. It starts off by saying, be fruitful and multiply, and it kind of closes this little section, be fruitful and multiply. So there's a a rhetorical element here, but it also is there for emphasis. And, of course, we know that, that offspring are a blessing from the Lord, and it just reiterates that blessing of being fruitful. But it also reiterates the necessity for offspring, for dominion. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that Noah and his three sons, that's not enough. That's not enough to kind of get everything done and take care of and you know, have dominion over the earth. So there's a necessity there, practical necessity there for, for fulfilling the dominion mandate. And then, of course, again, repeating and really dovetailing off of what was just mentioned about the value of human life, it's intrinsic. This multiplication uh, mandate is, is, is highlighting the value of human life. Yes? I don't know if this is my understanding, but I find it interesting that it says be fruitful and multiply and not be fruitful and add. Maybe just the thought of like maybe God intends us to have a lot of kids. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. Um, so then you get to the covenant itself. The covenant itself is then instituted. And that starts in verse 9 of chapter 9. Now again, 
hearkening back to the, the prior elements of the narrative, you do have the covenant promised in chapter 6, verse 18, where, where God actually says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, but he doesn't give any details of it. And then as we just read before we got into chapter 9 here, that we have the covenant sort of previewed at the end of chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, and it says the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of uh, Noah's sacrifice. And he, and he gives a preview. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Because it says the Lord said in his heart. So he's not presenting the covenant terms to Noah at this point. But he goes into some of the detail in previewing what the nature of that covenant, some of the terms of that covenant were going to be. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of his man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. All the earth remains, seed time and harvest, so forth and so on. So you have it. Promised in chapter 6, previewed in chapter 8, and now it's instituted. And this gets into the, the formal holding up or erecting, if you will, of the covenant. The language kind of has this idea of the building or establishing of this covenant in a formal sense. And what we notice here is that this covenant is unilateral and unconditional. Unilateral in the sense that it's, it's a covenant established solely by God. Now, in the context of thinking about a covenant or a covenant contract or contractual relationship as a general term, typically that is a, an agreement, a promise, a contract between multiple parties. This is unilateral. This is God making a covenant, instituting a covenant. Verse 9, behold, I establish my covenant. Verse 11, I establish my covenant. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant. Verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established. There is no partnership language in this covenant. There, there is no conditional if-then statement. So it's unilateral and it's unconditional. It doesn't involve the conditions being met by the opposing party or the other parties involved. This is just a, an unconditional covenant. Uh, Ross says this, This covenant does not depend on human obedience to the laws given to Noah. Rather, men's and women's compliance with the laws will allow them to live and enjoy this covenant. So the mandates that came before this are not conditions of this covenant at all. It's just that their compliance with those mandates, their submission to the Lord and His will and His purposes, provides the best environment and opportunity for them to enjoy the benefits of the covenant. But it is a covenant that God establishes unilaterally without reference to someone else's agreement or participation in contributing terms of the agreement of the covenant, and it's unconditional. Um, so it's unilateral and unconditional, but it's also, it also has universal benefits and universal beneficiaries, which is unique to this covenant. It's universal benefits and universal beneficiaries. Verses 8 to 11 of chapter 9 says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then in verse 12, You and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. And then verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living thing. 
excuse me, every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Verse 16, every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And verse 17, all flesh that is on the earth. So it has universal benefits and universal beneficiaries. The universal benefits is that never again will I destroy the earth in this manner. In a universal way, that will never happen again. And the beneficiaries are Noah, his sons, their offspring, and all future generations, and all animals, everything that came off the ark, and all the offspring of them. It's universal, in other words, in its scope. It's unique in that, in that nature. Not for fire. There is, there is judgment that is reserved. Yes, that's right. Um, <clears throat> so universal benefits and beneficiaries. And then there's this universal sign of the covenant. Covenants often are associated with some kind of sign that symbolizes or ratifies, if you will, in a formal sense, the covenant. This is no different, except this sign is universal in nature as well in terms of its, terms of its scope, its, its dimension, if you will. In verse 12, it says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now you'll notice that this is, I find this to be really compelling to think about. But verse 14, it talks about, Uh, when you see the clouds or the bow is seen in the clouds. So think of this. Think Think of the sign of the covenant being manifest in what was once the sign of impending universal judgment for Noah and his sons. The clouds. When you see the bow in the clouds, now now these clouds are going to produce a sign of a promise that this won't come again. It's a, a very potent uh, sign, a very compelling sign. Morris says this, When a storm has done its worst and the clouds are finally exhausted of most of their water, then there always appears a rainbow. And so God would have us remember again his promise after the great flood. The rainbow spanning from one end of heaven to the other would remind them that God's promises were from eternity to eternity, from beginning to end. I think that that is a safe bet. I mean, I can't prove that with any absolute certainty, but I... And I think that the argument would come from, you know, various interpretations of sort of the, the, the climate and the hydrologic cycle differences and that kind of thing. And we talked a little bit about that probably back when we were uh, in the creation narrative. I didn't spend a lot of time, I don't think, talking about those things. But, but the, the idea is that before there was rain, then there was rain, and it brought flood, and it brought massive flood, and now there's this sign of the covenant. So, you have, for the very first time, 
in the text introduced to us covenant, the, the explicit term covenant. And what I want to do really briefly for the next few minutes, and then we'll get into this more fully. I think I want to do this. I'm going to try to do it anyway. Um, when you introduce uh, the term covenant, especially as we're looking at um, Genesis 1 to 11 and sort of the, the, the beginnings of things in the, in the revelation of God, um, it raises what I think is a, a pertinent and, and um, interesting area of discussion for us, and that is the, the place and importance of covenant in redemptive history. Um, and it also raises, I think, questions about different modes or, or thoughts about interpreting Scripture and interpreting God's sweep of redemptive history as it's revealed. And it, and it highlights, in a way, or, or it kind of introduces, in a way, um, by extension, this discussion that I want to kind of briefly enter into. Again, I'm not going to get buried in the weeds and all this, but this uh, just a brief overview of uh, sort of a broad dispensational way of looking at the text of Scripture as compared to a more covenant theology way of looking at the text of Scripture and the sweep of redemptive history. Because those are sort of, in, in terms of, I mean, there are variants of both, so I don't think of, that this is a comprehensive way to look at this. But the two sort of big headings, if you will, are often a dispensational manner or mode or system, if you will, and then covenant theology is sort of a way of interpreting and understanding the flow of redemptive history from Genesis through Revelation and forward, um, and, then, and then bring it back to our church's position on the matter. I think it's important for us to just kind of, from time to time, revisit in a, in a formal sense, you know, what does our church believe? What does our doctrinal statement say, and how does it intersect with what we might be studying in the text of Scripture? So let me just kind of read a few things to you to kind of set some of this in our minds to give a framework for some of this. Um, and again, this is, this is in no way intended to be an extensive sort of seminary class. There are lots of, there's lots of material that's out there that can be read and studied about dispensational theology, covenant theology, and its variants. And I'm just going to touch on a few major components to kind of get the two big camps or categories set in our mind and to draw some distinctions between the two. Um, I'm not going to be able to do all that today. We'll do some of that next week. And then just to come back to, okay, what does all this mean relative to our church's given stated doctrinal position in this whole area of covenant in, in the scripture? So again, there are, in this particular article highlights what they call three main theological camps because they bring in what's called new covenant theology. Um, I, there's also progressive dispensationalism. So there's traditional dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, there's covenant theology or traditional covenant theology, and then there's new covenant theology, and then there's a variance of all that. Okay, so I'm just going to deal with um, the big categories and, and a little bit with new covenant theology and a little bit with uh, progressive dispensationalism as sort of the major variants. But just to frame up some of the major components of these things, and again, this is not going to touch on everything and every distinction, but... According to this, this, I think, fairly succinct description here, there are three main theological camps on the issues of law, gospel, and the structuring of God's redemptive relationship with humankind. Dispensationalism, covenant theology, and in this case, new covenant theology. And then I have another article that deals a little bit with this um, variant called progressive dispensationalism. 
Many have written to us asking about the differences between these three views. And it goes on to kind of segue into the first one, dispensationalism. It can be hard to summarize dispensational theology as a whole because in recent years, multiple forms of it have developed. Surprise, surprise. In general, there are three main distinctives. Again, three main distinctives. First, dispensationalism sees God as structuring his relationship with mankind through several stages of revelation, which mark off different dispensations or stewardship arrangements. Okay, A dispensation of time under which there is revelation, and under that context of revelation, there are... There's a stewardship of how the people of God are to function within that dispensation, that time period, that period of of redemptive revelation. Each dispensation is a quote-unquote test of mankind to be faithful to the particular revelation given at that time. Generally, generally, I emphasize, generally, you can find differences to this, but generally... Seven dispensations, or stewardships, if you want to use the other term that's often used, are distinguished. The dispensation of innocence, which would be before the fall. The dispensation of conscience, which would be Adam to Noah. The dispensation of government, which would be Noah to Babel. The dispensation of promise, which is Abraham to Moses. The dispensation of law, which is Moses to Christ, the dispensation of grace, which is Pentecost to the rapture, and then the dispensation of the millennium, or the millennial kingdom, or the millennial reign, okay? So it gets into, it goes from soup to nuts, as you can tell from that that sweep, right? It's it's like pre-fall all the way to millennial kingdom. I mean, it's trying to say, what is, how, how do you, how do you make sense of all this, you know, revelation of redemptive history and God's purposes, both past, present, and future. So it's, this is big, okay? Um, second, so that's, that's kind of the first summary there. Second, for dispensationalism, it holds to a literal interpretation of Scripture. This does not deny the existence of figures of speech and non-literal language in the Bible, but rather means that there are literal meaning behind the figurative passages. Again, we're going to build that out a little bit more. Because it's not to say that covenant theology doesn't take any of Scripture literally, okay? We've got to put a little more color on this for it to make sense. But just to kind of get our, our, our thoughts going, that one of the areas of emphasis for a dispensational theologian would be all the points at which it interprets various key passages literally as opposed to figuratively. That's kind of the point there. Um, Third, as a result of this literal interpretation of Scripture, dispensationalism holds to a distinction between Israel, even believing Israel, and the church. On this view, the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament were not intended as prophecies about what God would do spiritually for the church, but will literally be fulfilled by Israel itself, largely in the millennium. For example... The promise of the land is interpreted to mean that God will one day fully restore Israel to Palestine. In contrast, non-dispensationalists typically see the land promise as intended by God to prophesy a shadowy old covenant form, the greater reality that he would one day make the entire church, Jews and Gentiles, heirs of the whole renewed world. 
Now, this, that really is probably one of the more central um, distinctions between dispensational theology and covenant theology is what is the future of Israel? And, and what does that look like? And what, who does that encompass? That's really one of the bigger sort of categories of discussion and thought and distinction between the two. So that's going to be an important... Um, and, and, that, and that also ties into the interpretive approach to Old Testament passages that would speak to Israel and New Testament passages that would speak to Israel and all that. And actually, we're kind of in the middle of some of that with our Roman study in, in, um, in the main service that Shane's, that Shane's walking through. So, in many ways, it is thus accurate to say that dispensationalism believes in two peoples of God. Although both Jews and Gentiles are saved by Christ through faith, believing Israel will be the recipient of additional earthly promises such as prosperity in the specific land of Palestine, to be fully realized in the millennium. And that do not apply to believing Gentiles whose primary inheritance is thus heavenly. So there's this distinction between Israel and the church. Let's just put it that way. Now, covenant theology. Covenant theology believes that God has structured his relationship with humanity by covenants rather than dispensations. So there's kind of the reason for the different nomenclature, primarily. Um, For example... In Scripture, we explicitly read of various covenants functioning as the major stages in redemptive history, such as the covenant with Abraham, the giving of the law, the covenant with David, and the new covenant. These post-fall covenants are not new tests of man's faithfulness to each new stage of revelation, as the dispensations in, in dispensationalism, but are rather differing administrations of the single overarching covenant of grace. Okay, so just to draw a little distinction here, dispensational theology would say there are different dispensations or stewardships under which certain conditions apply within that frame. Covenant theology would take a bigger sweep to say there might be differences perceived, but it's under the same sweep of covenant. Okay, so we'll, we'll try to unpack that a little bit more next week. Um, the covenant of grace is one of two fundamental covenants in covenant theology. It structures God's post-fall relationship to mankind. Pre-fall, God structured his relationship by the covenant of works. So covenant theology would say, in the pre-fall world, there was a covenant of works. Namely, that God said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that would be sort of constituting the covenant of works pre-fall, okay? So really, covenant theology is the bigger sort of emphasis, as you can imagine, is not so much their, you know, understanding of the covenant of works, as they would call it, in pre-fall, because that was a brief period of time and a brief portion of Scripture. It's the bigger unfolding of things under the covenant of grace, okay? Um, The covenant of grace is best understood in relation to the covenant of works. The covenant of works instituted in the Garden of Eden was the promise that perfect obedience would be rewarded with eternal life. Adam was created sinless, but with the capability of falling into sin. He had remained faithful in the time of temptation in the Garden. He would have been made incapable of sinning and secured an eternal and unbreakable right standing with God. But Adam sinned and broke the covenant and thereby subjected himself and all his descendants to the penalty for covenant-breaking, which is condemnation. God in his mercy, therefore, instituted the covenant of grace, 
which is the promise of redemption and eternal life to those who would believe in the coming Redeemer. So covenant theology places a, an emphasis and importance on how you, how you tie Old Testament salvation, Old Testament redemption to New Testament redemption, to post-Christ salvation, if you will. How do you tie it together in a way that is coherent and seems reasonable and kind of makes sense in the flow of Revelation? So um, just that's one, one thing to point out. Um, <clears throat> the requirement of perfect obedience for eternal life is not annulled by the covenant of grace, but is rather fulfilled by Christ on behalf of his people. Since now that all sinners, no one can meet the condition of perfect obedience by his own performance. The covenant of grace, then, does not set aside the covenant of works, but rather fulfills it. So, in Christ, we, are, we fulfill the law, if you will. Um, as mentioned above, covenant theology emphasizes that there is only one covenant of grace, and that all of the various redemptive covenants that we read of in the Scripture are simply differing administrations of this one covenant. In support, it is pointed out that a covenant is, in essence, simply a sovereignly given promise, usually with stipulations. And since there is only one promise of salvation, namely by grace through faith, it follows that there is therefore only one covenant of grace. All of the specific redemptive covenants we read of, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, etc., are various and culminating expressions of the covenant of grace. Now, I'm going to stop there, and I'll do a brief overview of the other two, New Covenant Theology and Progressive Dispensationalism as an introduction next week. But I just want to put those ideas in our minds that you're really talking about people who are trying to, uh, who, who differ in their view of Scripture and redemptive history in certain ways, but both are trying to kind of look at the Scripture and understand how God is operating with people, and particularly with His people, His chosen people, His elect people, in the sweep of time and history, and looking also into the future and what the future looks like. You get into prophetic passages in the Old Testament as well as Revelation. So both, both camps, if you will, are seeking to understand and rightly interpret Scripture. This is not sort of a battle over someone trying to not interpret the Scriptures accurately and someone who is. That's not the nature of the distinctions or the differences. The other thing I will say as a word of caution as we get into this a little bit more next week is that there are dangers, as, as there always are, there are dangers for all of us, no matter where we sort of arrive at or wherever, wherever we land in our sort of understanding or our adoption of a certain um, sort of theological framework or interpretive framework work or, or doctrinal framework, there's a danger for all of us that we become married to a system and the, the components or elements of that system get laid onto the Scripture and we have to kind of have everything filter through our understanding of the system. We like the system. It makes sense to us. It's tied to Scripture, we know, but then we get to the points in the Scripture where it, the, the, the Scriptures themselves might not as clearly fit into the system and we have to do things to try to make it fit into the system. And that happens on both sides of the equation. And it happens with people who aren't even thinking about covenant theology and dispensational theology. They're not even thinking like that. There's just always this danger, this risk, because we are oriented toward wanting things to make sense. 
and wanting things to be clear and wanting to be able to sort of intellectually apprehend things that are in Scripture, which is a, a good motivation. But there's a danger for us to overly emphasize a system. I think this happens quite frequently with, like, for example, with the five points of Calvinism. You know, people adopt Calvinism as a, just a system, and they apply that system to every passage of Scripture that might, seem, that might have tension in it. And instead of just living with some of the tension that might be there, they try to force a particular passage that's not, that, that seems like it's a little bit contradictory to their system. They try to force it into the system in some way. So that's just a danger that we have to be mindful of as we, as we look to understand this. The, other, the last thing I'll say as we close is that we have people in our church that would hold to either one of these or both of these kinds of ways of seeing um, the Scripture. Okay, We have people that come from a more of a Presbyterian... Uh, covenant theology is often um, more associated with um, Presbyterian uh, background. We have quite a few people from Presbyterian background in our church. Um, and so there's, there's people in our, in our midst that, are, that would kind of see things from both vantage points. So this is not something that you break fellowship over, is the point. This is not something that you, you know, sort of have big fights over and, you know, don't, don't look at each other as you pass in the hall. Um, but there are differences, and our church does land somewhere, and I just want to kind of, you know, put that, put that before us um, as just a springboard off of this introduction in our study of this covenant, this term covenant, this formal ratification of a covenant, and uh, just kind of take that opportunity. So we'll, we'll kind of go a little bit further next week um, into this and hopefully, you know, draw some distinctions and, and have everybody kind of understand the different points of view a little bit uh, and then understand kind of the church's doctrinal position on the matter. Okay? All right. Any questions, comments, thoughts? You don't want to comment? <laughs> Me either. I just, that's why I read. All right, let's pray.